It's 6.59, I don't know if we should start yet or we'd hate to start early. Um, Well, let's go ahead and pray and then we'll kind of continue with and and finish um, on the subject we were on last week. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the day. Thank you for being with us through it. Lord, we're just grateful for the fellowship we can have with you as we walk with you through the day. You're good to us. Thank you for bringing us here tonight. Guide our thoughts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Last week, we looked at the whole business of church church and state and the Christian's place in um, government and read mostly, we looked at... um, Romans 13, which has a lot to say about that. Um, So what I kind of want to do tonight, or probably end up doing, is maybe contradicting myself a little bit. Um, Not that I, I just didn't get to contradicting myself last week, okay? Talked about um, the best way that Christians, and I think historically, even biblically, that Christians have influenced the secular governments that they're under has been winning, winning a heart, winning the heart, heart by heart. You change enough hearts and you change the society. And it might sound technical, but to try to set out to save the society, um, I think probably has it backwards. You can't change society until you change enough hearts within it. However, in emphasizing that, it doesn't mean that we're not to be actively involved in whatever government is over us as far as we can with that particular system of government. If it's a dictatorship, if it's a monarchy, um, you know, you don't have as many, it may be no opportunities to participate. We have um, the principles in scripture apply to us just as well as anybody else. But Christianity, the New Testament especially, was not written, the Old Testament's a theocracy. Okay, we don't have a theocracy. We should, but we don't. Um, the New Testament only has monarchy or dictatorship. It doesn't have democracy. Um, it's not that I hadn't heard of. The um, Athens was the first experiment in democracy, and that's three, four hundred years before Christ. Um, so it wasn't unheard of, but they were certainly not under that in the New Testament. So a lot of the instructions have to do with living under a government where you don't have any say. We do. That gives some different um, aspects to what our level of participation is or can be. Last week we talked about you know, holding office, running for election, doing things like that, all of which Christians have the right to do and um, ought to do. Um, And we didn't, 
we didn't get into too many down-to-earth illustrations. So um, what I want to kind of look at here is taking off another verse of Scripture we don't need to turn to, um, where, you know, the Pharisees seeking to trick Jesus or get him caught up in, in a, um, an argument that they could somehow pin him to the wall, which is really, uh, it's a losing proposition to try to tie Jesus up in knots. Um, but they gave him, a, hoping to get him the charge of, of treason. They show him a coin with Caesar's image stamped on it, and they say, tell us, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Um, and, you know, well, then Jesus asked, give me a coin, and he said, whose picture is this? Well, Caesar's. Um, then he simply answered, render to God what is God's, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Um, going off of the idea of image. We bear the image of God. You give to God what's God's. This, this is the passing away government we're under, the worldly, earthly government, and there's a place for it. But he, he establishes a couple things um, here that God's kingdom is superior. It is over earthly kingdoms. Earthly kingdoms have their place. There are some things by his statement that lets us know they belong to Caesar. But there are other things that belong to God. God all belongs to God. But what belongs to God in the particular sense Jesus meant it doesn't belong to Caesar. So that we're not to... That gets into the issue which we'll get into of civil disobedience or resistance. We're not to render to Caesar what's God's. Um, there, there's where the line is drawn. Now, <clears throat> um, let me ask you a couple questions here. Um, since there's some things that belong to Caesar, some things that belong to God, give me some things that do not belong to Caesar. Caesar has no right to. Government has no right to. 10%. Pardon me? 10%. You mean our tithe, what we do with it? Okay. What else? Worship. Worship. Exactly. Caesar has no right um, to coerce or restrict um, worship. What's maybe close to that, related to that? Beliefs, religious belief. Um, Caesar has no right to tell me what I can or can't believe in the, in the spiritual realm. He has no right to, to tell us that. Doesn't mean they won't try, but it's legitimate to deny Caesar authority over my conscience, what I believe, my worship. Um, <clears throat> other, other things Caesar doesn't have a right to. 
Anybody think of anything else? Maybe let me add a couple here. Um, we've sort of touched on this. My free will in matters of conscience. I have a right to choose what I believe, what I don't believe, what I won't worship, what I will worship. And human governments don't, don't have a right to tell me I must or must not when it comes to free will, my conscience. Um, <clears throat> children. Children and loved ones. Caesar doesn't have a right to tell me what I'm teaching my children or not teaching them. How I'm training them um, to think of spiritual things. He has no right to that at all. That's a flashpoint right now in our country regarding the astonishing arrogance of the education um, racket to tell tell children against their their parents or hide from their parents what they're telling that is that is unthinkable <clears throat> so caesar Caesar has to stay in his place. Um, and most of the, most of freedom of religion, the First Amendment that we have, which is pretty rare. Um, it, does anybody else have that? Any other country? I think we're one of the very, very few, if not, you know, that has a true Bill of Rights. Um, Sadly, we're based on English law, but the English don't have it. If you saw the guy the other day who literally was arrested because he had his head bowed near you know, some abortion clinic, and the police asked him to divulge what he was praying about. I mean, <laughs> and then when he said he was praying not only for a son of his that had died, but the deaths that were happening there, he got arrested. Now, not to get off into the founders, that's precisely one of the strong reasons that our founders put in freedom of religion. Because even to, to this day, Britain doesn't have that. Most of the laws then of freedom of religion are in one way, in one sense, they're one-way laws. They're intended to protect religion from the government, not to deny government access to, or, or religion access or comment, uh, input on what government is doing. We have the right to speak against laws and actions that we see as being immoral on the part of government. They don't have a right to tell us what to believe and so forth. So um, it's not equality. It's designed to protect religion and the free exercise from an intrusive government. Okay? Now, um, Here's a problem we have, and I, I want 
I want you to do your best here. You don't have to sound like Webster's Dictionary, you know. Um, but part of the, if you want to pa- call a, a, a difficulty we deal with is we have a pluralistic society and it's designed that way. Okay, now, what, does a pl- what is pluralism? What's a pluralistic society? What's the definition of that? Anybody have any idea? Or do you care? <clears throat> Pardon me? Okay, multiple cultures, which um, would include multiple religious ideas, um, cultural norms, um, you know, social mores and practices, um, ethnic heritage, all of those um, in a society that assumes, okay, and here's, here, here's the problem. Pluralism, as long as it survives, can only survive with tolerance. Tolerance and not a complete live and let live, but a certain level of live and let live. Okay? Now, for instance, um, and uh, well, another thing it involves, you have to have some set, even among widely different cultural um, backgrounds, you have to have some, uh, some commonly shared values. Okay? Just basic uh, respect of human life, property, rights, um, things of that sort, okay? Without any of those, and without respect for other people's positions, without some shared values, without some um, tolerance and freedom for people to be different than, than us, again, within some boundaries, you can't have a pluralistic society. Now, We've done our best as a country, I think, to have a pluralistic society. It's on, it only works as long as there is tolerance and so forth. But it can't last forever because people are wicked. And they're also godlessly selfish and self-centered. And once they figure out um, that they can dominate or oppress the other side, especially if there's multiple sides, your pluralism goes out the window. Then you're moving into one viewpoint dominance and punishment when you don't line up with it. Okay, which is where uh, we're headed to right now. Um, Pluralists or we could say liberals or whatever. Liberals always, and I think you can go virtually wherever in history, liberals always preach tolerance until they get the upper hand. They'll always preach tolerance when they're in the minority. And part of pluralism is you do. It is pluralism is, and our system is designed to protect the rights of the minority but 
It's only a moral commitment. We can't, you, you can't really legislate people to be tolerant, decent, nice, whatever. Can't legislate that. We, we try, um, but you really can't. It has to be from inside. So we, in our experience of, experience of pluralism um, in America, <clears throat> lasted as long as we have because of widely shared values. We, we weren't, I'm not going to get into we weren't specifically founded as a Christian nation, but it was founded by a population that was white Northern European Christian, okay? So naturally, that was the far and away um, shared value. We still had vicious political fights and all kinds of stuff back in our history, but there were some big foundation blocks of shared value I I think I've mentioned you Francis Asbury John Wesley Methodist uh, founder of Methodism sent him over in 1771 from England to be a quote missionary of Methodism here in the United States okay <clears throat> uh, his journals three volumes Fascinating. Never owned, never owned his own place. Um, came over 1771, I think 20, at about 22 or 3 years old, somewhere in there. Lived to 1816. Never owned a place. Lived out of saddlebags, rode horses, walked. Um, they figure he traveled um, at least 250,000 miles in America. I've seen I've crossed over one of the deepest um, ravines I've ever seen in Tennessee, the Cumberland River, and there's a, there's a bridge that goes over. It's man, it's deep, and he talked about finding his way through the forest, following that river. No trails, nothing but maybe Indian trails. Um, but here's the one thing you find in that in his journal. He, one of the, he preached everywhere, under trees, in cabins, wherever. He always preached, wherever he went, he always was given permission to preach at the courthouse. Now, it may have been a log cabin that was the courthouse, or it may have been a stone one, you know, a good one. But it was customary, or in the judge's chambers, in a courtroom, he'd preach. Oh, that was never, no one said a word, no one thought about it, and the authorities always said, absolutely, you have access to it. You can preach in courthouse steps if the crowd's too big, but yeah, it's, it was always open to him. Because we had, even though we had freedom of religion, and by then, of course, had said in the Constitution, there can never be any religious test to hold office or anything like that, nothing has been changed there. It was assumed. Sure, you let, you let the preacher preach. Baptists could preach there. Presbyterians could preach there. Um, nobody was worried about, you know, the ACLU screaming at you. Um, why'd that change? Well, men's hearts changed. 
Christianity, uh, adherence to Christianity um, declined, and still are, but also we, there was, and I'm not going to get off, you know, don't get me arrested. Um, that was one of the reasons there was such objection to massive immigration of the Irish during the Irish potato famine in the 1850s. Why? Anybody know why there was, they were, and they were mistreated. They were really mistreated. Um, anybody know why? Catholics. I mean, you don't, we're Protestants, and we're not having any Catholics. Um, I still remember, um, I'm old enough to remember the papers I had a paper out, and sometimes I'd you know, read the paper before I delivered them. I still remember um, seeing a picture in the front page of the Eugene Register Guard, it's called, of John Kennedy when he was running for president, appearing with the Dallas Ministerial Association to try to tell him he wasn't going to turn the country over to the popes, you know, to the pope and the Catholics. Um, that's only, you say, only... 61, 1961. Still a strong feeling. First, never had elected a president who was a Catholic. And it was not a minor thing that John Kennedy was a Catholic. Um, there were jokes around, he's going to change the coins to, from in God we trust to the Pope we hope. Um, but that was a residual feeling um, that late in you know, in our history, and it had been a hundred years since there were major Irish um, immigrations here to America. Um, we've had other issues in the, in the years that have begun to tear down some of the, you'd say, rights and the respect for religion. Um, but this is the only other illustration or thing I'll mention, then we'll move to the next issue. But in 1973, uh, I think it was signed into law, but anyway, it was in 73, <coughs> wonderful human being by the name of Ted Kennedy pushed through a bill, both the Senate and the House, got the President to sign it, greatly, greatly, greatly expanding and totally redefining the immigration policies of the country, specifically to steer away from any more white Europeans, Northern Europeans. And it was throw it open to every, you know, Bangladesh, whoever, but other religions. So since then, we're, there's, what, about 50 years of almost turning the spigot off for um, Christian immigration and moving it to all kinds of, all kinds of religions. It changed the complexion of our country. And it's really gone a long way toward destroying the balance of pluralism. Now, um, <clears throat> so pluralistic 
society um, is is just a a society with um, a number of different religions, cultures, languages, traditions, so forth, and for a long time too. Um, those groups, many groups, always maintained their identity. Large cities, there's the, there, you know, there's the German, there's Germantown, there's Chinatown, there's, you know, um, you go to, uh, our son Jonathan was in Milwaukee um, for his PhD at um, Marquette. Um, really enjoy, fun to go there. And you go to the Polish section. He, they were heavy Polish. Um, bigger than Polish, um, German. You go to Germantown. Um, we would go to the Polish section, and uh, they had you know all this Polish Polish restaurants, and it's just enjoyable. But they were still Americans. I mean, they didn't they they weren't divided all up. That's enjoyable, really, and that's kind of of um, it seasons the culture. But now that's fast eroding because we're, everyone's bunkered into their own whatever and canceling everybody else. And that is going to have to be reversed. We're not going to make it, period. You, you can't survive the direction that we are heading as a society. Um, now, <clears throat> another thing about America and our culture that sets us apart um, to some degree, even from the, the government during Bible times, um, is that we have still the right to participate. We can vote, we can nominate, we can down even to the precincts. You know, we, we can um, write letters, we can, we can appear at public meetings and speak our minds. So in a general sense, we have, we're, we're f quite unique in the fact that as citizens we can still participate. That includes Christians. So there's a way, in addition to participating by election, being elected or serving, um, to be an influence. Now, thinking of, um, we have a right to participate. We also have a right to protest and to resist. Um, how do we and when do we as Christians use the privileges that we do have to speak our minds, to disagree, to when I say protest, I'm not, I'm not talking about nonviolent protests like they had in Atlanta. <laughs> um, but, you know, to speak our minds, to resist in some way. Um, first, what are the conditions that justify us speaking up? and speaking our minds and um, maybe generally you think of it as opposing, but um, oppose or promote 
some particular issue that is close to Christians. It's a moral issue. What, how do we know, um, what should we fight over? Yeah. Yeah. Any things that, anything that you can think of, maybe government does you don't like, but it is maybe out of the realm of what we should make moral, make a moral issue. You want each of us to share our list? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Pardon me? Can you repeat what he said? Well, he said, do, um, do you want the whole list? Um, that he <laughs> Let me ask you this. There are a lot of times that church groups, Christian organizations, will take a position on, say, some kind of tax issue. Okay? I'm not talking about escaping taxes for churches and stuff like that. I'm not talking about if they would reverse that. But just, you know, the taxes are too high or, you know, whatever. Is that an issue that belongs to God or does it belong to Caesar? Anybody? Yeah. Anybody else? Again, I'm trying to speak as, maybe not as a block of Christians, because we don't all speak, you know, the same. But um, we're, and Christ, Christians in America, of course, are not monolithic. We don't all think alike. But um, I think that there can be some barely moral issues or um, non-moral that Christians can get involved in, that we might spend some capital there that we'd be better off saving it for truly moral issues. Does that make any sense? I, I just think, I don't like high taxes. I despise the IRS, okay? Um, and, and I think, I hope there's nobody here that has relatives that are... Uh, I think you can write reams of psychological profiles of what kind of people would ever go to work for the IRS. Um, you, something's, anyway. Um, but I don't know that we can make that a moral issue. Now, um, what, about, what about paying taxes that we know are used for immoral purposes? Let me throw that out. What should we do there? The first question is immoral to everybody or immoral to you and you, but not the rest of the group. Okay, you just, br you just brought up a huge question. Um, and you would have 50 different positions, even within what you would identify as Christendom, Christianity let alone what everybody else outside the church would think. Um, 
And if we believe within reason of freedom of conscience, freedom of thought, freedom of belief, um, we automatically introduce the idea of multiple conflicting ideas and beliefs. And many of them indistinguishable as far as true right and wrong. It's just different. Who gets to say then what's immoral and what isn't? Now usually at extremes, those are easier questions to answer. Um, but that introduces what I'm realizing more and more just in reading <clears throat> for this lesson or for this class. Um, it's not the first time I've taught ethics, but I'm just reminded of how much there's a lot of people that want to go get their little green and yellow boxes of crayons, you know, 16 crayons, and throw away all but two. <laughs> you know, the black one and the white one. In ethics, you got to save the gray color, gray, gray crayon. Because, again, not in, when the scripture, when God says such and such, there's no gray. But sometimes there's even some gray in when God's uh, statements apply to that situation. There's a judgment too. So um, that, that is a question that um, Tom and then, yeah. Yeah, to discern good and evil. You wouldn't have, again, we've already talked about Romans 14, but you wouldn't have Paul exhorting people to, within the church, not to bicker over issues that they differ over regarding personal Christian ethics. Um, and again, they would be, well, Paul considered them non-essential, meaning it wasn't a heaven or hell issue. But some people ate meat, offered idols, some didn't. Um, leave each other alone, he said. So even at that somewhat minute level, but some people didn't think it was minute. That's the problem. What is essential and what isn't? We can all say doctrines that are not essential, we shouldn't fight over. We can disagree, we can discuss, but we shouldn't divide up over. We shouldn't split a church over or whatever else. And everybody goes, yeah, I, I tell you what, that's right, that's right. We all do. Now, tell me what's essential and what isn't to you. And you're going to find out what one person says is essential isn't to somebody else. Okay, who settles that? Most of the time you don't sell it. So you go down the street and you buy a piece of property and you build another church. You understand what I mean? So it's not as easy. Ethics is murky sometimes. Now, Phil. Well, you know, and I agree with the, the thing about the money and the government. It's the, you know, the government, um, what, what they make belongs to them. And I don't think we ought to get caught up in, like, what, uh, you know, our tax money goes for this or that. We know it is a, as a corrupt world. Yeah. And so I think the thing is, is it's not where 
where the money goes, it's that whatever that pays for, that's the thing we, we're upset about. It's not where we shouldn't be uh, involved in money anyway or not really. It, it shouldn't do much to us. It should be why are they acting that way? Mm-hmm. Why, why do they allow abortion? Why should they pay yeah. for abortion in the omnibus bill? Yeah. But it's not the money thing, it's the acts that they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, it's the moral yeah, policy behind it. Yeah, I think um, a, a, another question that goes along with that is, um, am I responsible for what the authorities under whom I live use the monies they tax from me? Um, am I responsible for what they use it on? No. I can't, I have no control over that. God has never once said that I'm responsible for what somebody else does, maybe immorally, with, you know, the, as he said, give tribute to whom tributes due, taxes to whom taxes are due. Uh, I am not responsible for what they do with it. Yeah. Another issue to get even closer to home um, is, and I can say this without, I'm not just blowing smoke at you guys. Um, this congregation is beyond description good. I've never dealt with here. In fact, in most of the churches I've, pastors, I've, I've had it good. Um, but there, there are Christians, there are church members who up, um, push agendas by tithing or not. You know what I mean? You do this and I'll, I'll give towards it. You don't, I'm not going to pay. Well, that's God's money. Really God's money. <laughs> really, really God's money. Um, and he doesn't take too kindly to that. Um, but you're right. Um, I don't really possess anything. I'm going to leave it all here. Um, <clears throat> now, maybe another question here. Um, let's see. Let me throw this one out. <clears throat> As Christians, sometimes we have very few avenues that we can express ourselves or try to make any changes. Um, what about boycotts? You know, economic boycotts, property boycotts, or, or you quit going to Disneyland because they're nuts. Um, you know, I think that those, to me, um, I, I have a bit of, of a way to register my thinking by I won't I will not um, I won't participate in it or help fund it what do you th- yeah how is that different from the example well that's because it's, they're doing it with God's money they don't have any right to do it God said you'd bring it into the to the storehouse. And so 
That's, that's why he, he said, you, you take the 10% and you spend it on something else. He, he, he says, you're robbing me because he said, that's mine. You, the 90, that's different. You can give offerings out of that. You can do what you want, go water skiing on, you know. But not, the 10 is mine. So you use that some other way. You're a thief because it's mine. So... Um, that's what makes that such a an egregious thing that I'm I'm leveraging with what isn't even mine to try to influence. And th- let me give you I'll just tell you this. I don't know we're not going to have a big fight over boycotts and, and opinions tonight. Um, <clears throat> I haven't been to what's the name of it now? I don't even go there. But I can't remember the name of it. Um, What's the pizza place where they have the drag shows downtown next to what? Pizza Corella. Okay. They had a, they, I think their pizza's good. It's overpriced. But I don't know when it's been a couple years ago. They had some drag show thing and I figured I don't care about their pizza. I'm not going. Period. Um, if they haven't gone broke, but I'm not supporting them. Yeah. I think it depends on how egregious it is. You know, Paul said, eat whatever is sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience. And he was just talking exclusively about meat sacrifice to, to idol. Gods. Yeah. And he basically says, it's okay to eat Yeah. Meat, but if someone comes up to you and says, this has been offered in sacrifice, then you shouldn't eat it. Yeah. You know, uh, and and yeah, that's, that's the difference. Is that if they're throwing it in your face. I bet if you traced every dollar we ever spend, then somebody's yeah yeah um i don't want to eat up time with this but i grew up when i was a little kid i can remember and i don't know it wasn't i was really i'd been under 10. (coughs) my parents and a lot of christians a lot of evangelical you know um wouldn't shop at um this is how old i am i think i was you know as a little kid i was on the cusp of the start of supermarkets okay when i was really little i can remember we had right in our neighborhood just on a a a house lot the size of any other house lot was a little corner grocery store called goodings market okay i i bet it wasn't as big as well, it was probably 100 by 100 or whatever a lot is, 100 by 50. Um, <clears throat> we'd go down there and buy licorice and, you know, ride your bike down and get bubble gum and all that kind of stuff. Um, and they had jug of milk and they had, you know, a few things. Um, but those began to quickly fade away as the supermarket came in. Well... My parents and a lot of Christians said, we're not going to go to these supermarkets that sell um, tobacco and alcohol. So I, you know, I remember my parents um, moving to Vancouver, Washington, and I can remember them. There was a supermarket. They, they, they finally found a supermarket that was, didn't sell tobacco and liquor. Okay, So... They went there, um, and others in town began to start, you know, mo- there's a lot of money in it. 
So this one store that they were going to was kind of the last holdout. The other supermarkets in town had caved and, you know, gotten on, got on the alcohol tobacco wagon. Um, but this supermarket market hadn't. <clears throat> so that's where they always went to shop for groceries. Well, that supermarket finally caved. Well, I think, I don't know, I faintly, I think my dad said something to the manager, the owner, he knew and, you know, how, you know, rotten that was to do. Um, <clears throat> but it soon became utterly impossible um, to find a place that didn't sell tobacco and alcohol. And I do remember listening to them talk to other people, talk to other preachers, just, you know, they'd come to dinner and whatever, I'd overhear stuff. And they finally came to the conclusion, um, we, we're, not, we're not supporting alcohol and tobacco unless we're buying it. <laughs> and, and since you cannot, we, we sort of had a choice, eat, <laughs> um, eat and, and buy our food from a place that also sold alcohol and tobacco or starve. <laughs> um, and you know, so they came to the conclusion, I can't be responsible for what, you know, that guy does. I don't have to participate in the actual thing, okay? So sometimes reality will, will turn not eternal matters, but those kinds of convictions. It, it could be, I suppose, if Pizza Corral ends up the only place in all of Gillette that sells food, you know, I'd go buy a pizza. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but <clears throat> I think there is, there's some playing of the game that the world plays because we know that the world's God is money. And nothing gets their attention quicker than their pocketbook. And so um, if we can hurt their bottom line, um, if they're engaging in immoral practices, well, I think we should. So, anyway, um, so I'm going to get all your license plates, you know, I'll have all of them in a, my computer, and if I go by Pizza Corral and I see your car out there, I, <clears throat> it's going to be bad. Um, <clears throat> let's see here. I do think, though, and I'll ask you some more questions here in a minute, but I, I also think... Um, let me contradict myself. There are times when, unfortunately, and I think I can speak from experience, um, there are times when, well, I'll give you my dad's advice. When I got in the ministry, he said, listen, you're going to be building, you'll, you know, there'll be times you'll be building a building, you're going to be, you know, he said, if you need somebody to build your building, build a church building or whatever, he said, find the cussinest, whiskey-drinkingest guy you can find. He'll build you a good building. You get some guy that's his main advertisement is, I'm a Christian. Don't hire him. Okay? <laughs> well, who built this? That we sued. Um, and they were miserable. So... I'm getting too far off the subject here, but probably I'm as, I, I, I almost, sometimes I worry 
when somebody's got a fish sign out on their shop, whether I ought to go there or not. Because a lot of people, you know, I, I, I'm supposed to be obligated because this person says he's Christian. Not necessarily. Um, but anyway, um, so let's see. I already asked that question. Um, here's, here's a huge one that we all know is going on right now. And frankly, I worry about my grandkids. Um, my kids, fortunately, are out of public school now. Um, but I think one of the most pressing things we've got going on right now is what, are, what, what do Christians, and thank God we, I live in Gillette. Um, I mean, I know that I suppose we have our problems, but the, the school district here isn't even 100 miles from what people are dealing with across this country um, with, you know, the subterfuge that people are using and school districts are using to indoctrinate the kids. What do, you, what do you do in a case like that as a Christian? You've got kids, you know, I think you have to speak up. Um, well, I, I won't answer the question that I'm supposed to be asking you guys for comments. What do you do? Everything you can. Yeah. Well, okay, what would that include? Okay, voting on school board. <clears throat> okay, anything else? Speak up at their meetings. Pardon me? Speak up at their meetings. Yes. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. If, unless they shut you down. <laughs> but. Engage with your kids and find out what, what they're coming home with. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think you equip them. You have to equip your kids. Y- yes. In the end, it's interesting how many, I think, how many parents would fight like a Comanche that, you know, those are my kids, don't indoctrinate them. But we don't indoctrinate, in, in not, we don't inculcate into them Christian values to arm them so that they recognize what they're hearing. Um, even the issue, you know, when Cameron started into school, when our kids started into school, you know, um, I just told him, listen, you're going to hear about evolution, you know, 80 billion years or, you know, give or take 65 billion. Um, Don't pay attention to it. God made it. So, you know, Um, that's the only level that I've ever had to deal with. None of this trans junk and all that stuff. Um, But it could be. It it could be if for, for the sake of my children or grandchildren, that if at all possible, including financial sacrifice, you send them to a private school. Um, pardon me? Or, I was going to say, or you homeschool if you can. Um, I mean, sometimes it's desperate enough, and the, and, and the situation you're putting them into. Um, if I was still in Eugene, Eugene's goal... 20 years ago, their goal was they want 50% of all the police in Eugene openly gay. They wanted 50% of all the school board members to be openly gay. And they, they got their goal right off the bat. Well, what do you do in a case like that? You either, you know, Christian schools popped up everywhere. Um, it can change your lifestyle. You may have to change your budget. 
But that's a, those are never dying souls you've got responsibility for. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't exist. You know, it was it was our job as Christians. That was the one thing God gave us to do is to train your children in the way you <clears> go. You know, and then we have abdicated that right and given it to the government and then we explain when the government teaches them crappy stuff. And I mean that maybe that sounds pretty harsh, but at the same time, you know, you didn't, there wasn't a law that you had to go to school. Then yeah, yeah. <clears throat> You know, it's interesting when you look at um, when you look at the origin, especially of colleges. It's easier to sometimes check on that. Um, there are hardly any, except for the state universities. Um, vast majority of them had church origins. the The churches assumed the responsibility. Of education, you go clear back into you go clear back into the six seven hundreds, and it was considered the church's job to educate wherever there was education. Um, and you look now at all the great universities—we call them great—but they're sick. Um, every single one of them were started as schools for ministers: Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Um, every one of those. Are, were Puritans, of no less, or Congregationalists, or whatever, um, because the church then ended up kind of, I don't know if the church gave it up, or the government just by creeping, you know, um, adding power, but the government ended up, you know, taking education over, and now here we are fighting, you know, to try to keep in many places, keep our kids from being indoctrinated. Um, let's see here. <clears throat> Here's another question we probably can't answer. Um, when is it time, as Christians, to, I hate to use this term, and I, I don't, I'm probably exaggerating, but when is it time, as a Christian, uh, to give up on certain institutions that you judge are un, uh, not salvageable and try to establish new institutions. That can be schools, that can be denominations, that, but we're, we face that constantly. How long do you stay in something with the well-meaning aim of reforming it when do you reach the point that you've, you're wasting your time and you, you go start your own or another one? When, law, when laws are made to uh, that forbid, you know, a moral conduct, when laws yeah. against, uh, you know, that, that are the indoctrination laws, these kinds of things, when those are passed, yeah. it's time to go somewhere. Then it's time to go, yeah, yeah. Um, every single major, every single major denomination or major um, down through church history, 2,000 years, um, there were efforts to reform it 
without fail, when they started to get to decay, there were heroic efforts by people within it to try to retard the spoilage, um, you know, and to rekindle the original um, fire that they had. Most of the people who ended up starting new religious movements never, ever intended to start a new religious um, institution. They tried to reform the, they were, the one they were in. They were spectacularly unsuccessful, and usually the powers that be threw them out. That's how Luther never wanted to leave the Catholic Church. He tried to reform it. John Wesley, in fact, John Wesley, though he was a Methodist, he died at 88 and he was a Methodist, um, in, which was a name, derogatory name that the English church gave them. Um, he was a Methodist for probably 60 years. Or, or, yeah, a Methodist for 60 years, but he never, he died an Anglican priest. He absolutely wouldn't leave the Anglican church because his goal was reformant. And it was about 15 minutes after they closed the lid on his grave that the Methodists left the Anglican church. You're, you can't, there's never been a case where um, a, especially religious, starting out religious organizations and then corrupted that that individual organization revived. I don't know of one in church history. It always ends up they finally died or were pushed out or somehow they, they had to start something new. The old sat there, it was still a shell and it might be, um, well sadly, you look, at, you look at the United Methodist Church today uh, they're having this big split. If you read much in the papers, um, they, they, it was supposed to be an amicable division. They recognized it had been divided for 40 years over gay issues. And so finally they said, look, it's, we're going to blow up, so let's just have a controlled explosion and get it over with. And they set all kinds of rules. I know for a fact um, from my brother who lives... 20 miles from the leader of um, what's called the Global Methodist Church. The, and he's talked personally with him. They had three, uh, the group of the Methodists that were opposed to gay marriage and all that stuff. They had across the United States 3,000 lawyers. I think all of them were Methodists, you know, but they had them on retainer to draw up contracts with, all the, with the whole denomination for an amicable separation. The big thing, of course, was the Methodists, like a lot of denominations, own the property. The local congregation pays for it, maintains it, and doesn't own it. So if they leave, thank you very much, but this building's ours. They agreed, contracts, everything, um, we won't do that. Everybody just go their own way. We'll be buddies. You know, we'll speak on the street and nobody's got to pay for their building. We'll just let you have it. 
they immediately reneged the gay side and they are now re in some bigger churches they're now demanding a million dollars to get out um, and that's in some cases with not a million dollars worth of building or anything like that so they've reneged on it all and now it's even a worse fight it's going to end up in the courts which is always great um, but anyway the global people um, there was a group called Confessors, the Confessing Group, and then there was a good, there's a uh, group in the Methodist Church that they've been around, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna guess, at least 45 to 50 years, called the Good News Movement. It was an underground group in Methodism trying to reform it, okay? And then there was the Wesleyan Covenant Group, and they tried to pick up where the Good News Group couldn't get anything. Meanwhile, good news is still in existence. They don't do anything. Um, but the other group now, that we're going to reform it. They've spent, they've spent since probably 50 years reforming it. It's not going to happen. You might as well just cut your losses and get out. Um, anyway, that's meant to just really encourage you. Um, let's see. When it comes to the, you know, civil government, finally here, um, <clears throat> when civil disobedience appropriate? First of all, is it? And if so, um, when is it justified? Yeah. There is a contract that something goes against the Constitution. Um, there's a contract between the government and the people, and it's embodied in some kind of a Constitution or some set of agreements, whatever. If there is, if there are efforts to nullify it or you know defy it or whatever else. Um, some of the most conservative Bible commentators I've read um, believe, and I'm talking going back into the 1800s, believe that that dissolves the citizen's obligation because the contract's been broken. And so there's justification for pushing back. Yeah. Um, Martin Luther King days, I mean, that was civil disorder against existing laws. Yeah. And, and that made us a better country, but yeah. it, it's on the opposite side of, yeah. of If you didn't, If you didn't hear it, Dan said, um, you know, you take the civil rights laws, which were um, laws on the books, they were resisted. Okay, well, I would say the justification for resisting against those is that they're fundamentally wrong. They're morally wrong, okay? It's a holdover, really, um, from one of the, you, you could say, I was gonna, the last question I was gonna ask here or, is, um, 
some examples where civil disobedience, largely by Christians, uh, led to uh, fundamental change. Slavery is one of them. Um, the last letter John Wesley, founder of the Methodists, wrote in, in uh, 1791 was to, I think I mentioned last week, Wilberforce, the Prime Minister of England, and urging him, don't give up the fight to get England out of the slave trade. England didn't really have, have slaves in England to, to speak of, but they were the, they were the shipping companies that, that carried it out. And um, if it weren't for clergy in the United States and in England and Christian parliamentary and Congress and so forth, um, there wouldn't, that's what got rid of slavery. Um, so that was justified civil disobedience. Now, I just finished a book not very long ago called The Emancipator and something else, the, not the rebel, but anyway, something. On Abraham Lincoln and John Brown. You know, John Brown blew up Harper's Ferry and, and, and he, he meant well, I think his, his, his ultimate end was to end slavery. But he was nuts. <laughs> um, and he was also so radical that he gave a bad name to abolitionists who were Christians. Now, he claimed to be a Christian, but my, he just murdered people in cold blood, and um, he, he was a bad guy. Um, and it, was, it just traces the two tracks um, of two groups, the John Browns of the, of the country who felt Lincoln wasn't moving fast enough, and um, Lincoln had better sense. Um, interesting, too, the Lincoln's own diary and the letters he wrote, just absolutely f full of scripture. Um, you know, read his Bible, and his point was, you can't, this isn't moral. Uh, can't do this to another human. Um, so there are cases where Christian civil disobedience was just and produced a just result. Okay, um, we probably ought to quit. Yeah, it's 8, well, yeah, it's 8, 8 06. Um, One other, I would say this, slavery is a good one. One other that didn't work out so good was prohibition. Um, and anybody ever heard of Cary Nation? Anybody here? Ever, so you've probably, you, you have. You ever seen a picture of her? Oh, she was, she was small. You know, she had a big bonnet and had a, you know, black kind of a bow on it. These little wire rim glasses. Picture is, and it's not a painting, it's a picture. Um, a Bible, pretty big Bible like this, and a hatchet. Okay? Because she would go into bars and literally start chopping on them. And she spearheaded what was called the temperance movement, which resulted in, what was it, the 18th Amendment, wasn't it? Outlaw and alcohol. It only lasted for, what, 10 years or something, through the 20s. Um, but that, that resulted, that it, she and those people 
in, in the end, um, are responsible for every weirdness that I've got, okay? Because my parents, wanting me to stay away as a little kid from demon rum, um, made me go to the WCTU meetings. WCTU meetings were Women's Christian Temperance Union, okay? Carrie Nation started that. And a lot of these women who literally took axes and would go into bars while they're open and chop them up. Um, so I had to go to these and... I, all I remember was it was in two elderly sisters' home, and they were both somewhere between 120 and 130 years old, and their house smelled like mothballs. Remember how old people's houses used to smell like mothballs? Um, and we'd sit there, um, four or five of us little kids, and they, I don't remember, the only thing I remember as I got older was if you want to be driven to, dr to drink, go to WCTU meetings. Um, I mean, you'll down a fifth as fast as you can get a hold of it. Absolutely worst boring torture I've ever been through in my whole life. So that's, I have excuses for why, you know, um, I may be a little off kilter. Anyway. Well, okay, next week, what do you want to do next week? You want to really get into some gray? I think we could get into a lot of medical stuff. I mean, there's, of course, there's abortion, there's euthanasia, um, there's end-of-life care. What? Yeah, I, I, in vitro stuff where you've, you know, fertilize a number of eggs and then you destroy the rest. I mean, wh that's a huge one. And so I, do we want to do that or not? That's on my list of things to look at. But, um, Are we going to be able to solve those issues? Yeah, because like we do every, every Wednesday night already, yeah, the list is getting short of, you know, stuff. You know, again, There are, of course, some ethical questions that are cut and dried. God couldn't have been any plainer, and that's the end of it. But there's an awful lot. Well, I don't say an awful lot. But there is, there are issues that are difficult sometimes to sort out um, and to know. And there's where I think um, you can't trust anybody. We can't trust ourselves or anybody else to interpret Scripture unless we approach it with a pure-hearted willingness to take from God what he says um, because there's interpretation involved in some cases. Um, so, I, I yeah. Those issues are, are relevant because God actually tells us in the Bible how, you know, he actually tells us how he deals with, I mean, we're, we're trying to change what he does. So yeah, oh, you're talking about medical stuff? Yeah. So I think they they are good issues, and I think there's there's clear answers, biblical answers. I think um, <clears throat> I suppose one of the ones that I get I've been involved in, and I've had to sit down with ethics committees at hospitals, is the end of life stuff. You know, when do you take off or take you unplug? You know. Um, Sometimes I think they're clear, 
but they're really hard. And you got family that then you have people that don't know God, people who do know God in the same family and they're fighting over what you do. It's, those are not fun. But anyway, okay, well, let's pray and um, then we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, <clears throat> we do thank you that even though we can go into situations and not know what in the world to do, you're always faithful to either bring scripture to our minds, somehow the Holy Spirit just speaks to us and the picture clears up, the fog goes away, and we know this is the way walking in it. Uh, you never leave us without direction. Um, so that, that makes us uh, need to stay close to you and keep our hearts warm towards you and to listen and hear your voice. Go with us now, I pray. Thank you again for us being here tonight. And I pray you keep us safe as we go home. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you are dismissed. <laughs>